Thanks very much, team. The Bible reading today comes from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, it's my pleasure to open up this passage with you this morning. And this passage deals with a heavy topic. It deals with death. I remember in 2018, I took my first funeral ever as a pastor. It was for a man who had come along to our community cupboard a few times, and he started to come along to church here and there, and I'd never met his family before. But one day, I received a phone call from his son, and he told me that this man had passed away and asked me if I could take the funeral. And over the next few days, I, I got to know the family a bit more, and uh, they never mentioned any hope in Jesus, and, and they weren't churchgoers and that sort of thing. And uh, at the funeral, I, I remember getting up and standing up in front of everyone and just looking at the family's faces in the front row. And their faces, the look on them was one of bewilderment, of, of shock, of confusion. Even though that they knew that their loved one was sick, nothing could have prepared them for his death. Death has a way of doing that to us. Death is an imposter. It's a curse in a world that was not originally part of this good world that God created. And deep down, I think we feel this, especially when it touches the lives of our loved ones. And I believe that's why we often hear at non-Christian funerals all sorts of vague ideas about the deceased person being in heaven with the angels and looking down on us and, and desires to be reunited with them one day because we don't want death to be the end. No one wants to be an atheist at a funeral. We hope beyond hope that there is something more, something greater. Now, is this deep longing, is it misguided or is it telling us something? Is it telling us that there is something more? Is it telling us that our souls were made for eternity? Paul addresses this issue in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18. Our passage tells us what lies beyond the grave for those who trust in Jesus and it focuses in on what happens when Jesus returns. The church it was written to was in a place called Thessalonica. 
And this church had only just been established by Paul. For a little bit of backstory, you can read through Acts 16 to 17. In Acts 16, verses 9 to 10, it says that one night, <coughs> sorry, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready, Luke says, at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Did you know that the people of Thessalonica were Macedonians? And as it turns out, so were the people in Philippi. So Paul and Silas and Luke, they traveled to Philippi first, and then they experienced some pretty bad persecution there. So their church sent them away during the night, and uh, they traveled, uh, sorry, they experienced some persecution there, and they traveled further to the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Here's the route Paul would have taken on the left side. So started in Philippi, and it says in Acts 17 that he went through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica. And on the right is just a Google Maps image. So Thessalonica, uh, that city is in modern day Greece today. You can go and visit it. Real place. And in Acts 17 verses 1 to 10, we read that Paul went to the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica for three weeks, arguing that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. Some people believed him and joined him. But some of the Jews there got jealous, got jealous about Paul's following, got jealous that others were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and they became violent. They stirred up a violent mob, and the new church there was worried for Paul's very life, so they sent him and Silas away during the night. And this helps us to understand our passage a little more this morning, because Paul had only spent a little bit of time with these new Christians. They knew enough to know that Jesus was the Messiah, that there was a resurrection, that Jesus would return again, but they didn't know much else. Because between the time Paul had left and wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it looks like some of the believers there had died. And those who were remaining were worried. They were worried that their deceased brothers and sisters would miss out on Jesus' return. They were worried that they would miss out on the resurrection. And they probably felt the way many people do at a funeral today, confused, shocked, bewildered, saddened. What has happened to our beloved brothers and sisters who have passed? They were grieved. So Paul steps in to clarify for them what will happen in the end. He argues that death is not a full stop, but a comma in the sentence of life. And he shows them what comes after this comma for the believer. He teaches them and us three things about the end. The first thing he says is don't be uninformed about the end. Don't be uninformed about it. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He then goes on to give details about the end of the age, Jesus' second coming. He goes on to talk about the end times. Now, we swing one of two ways when it comes to this subject. We either have an excessive and unhealthy interest in it, or we have a complete disinterest and a complete ignorance about it. 
we swing one of two ways. When we take an excessive interest in this topic, we often want to find out more than the Bible allows, and it becomes an unusual hobby horse, a special kind of knowledge and insight that you can only get through special insights into world events, for example. And when we go too far with this, this teaching about the end ceases to be what Paul intended it to be. He intended it to be an encouragement. He intended it to cheer up the Thessalonian Christians, not to create a new hobby for them charting world events. On the other side of the spectrum are those who are completely disinterested in it. They don't really realize how much hope and encouragement can come from knowing about the end, from knowing about Jesus' return. Maybe they've seen people get a little wacky and weird about it at times, and it's put them off. Michael Bird, an Australian theologian, he tells a story about one of his experiences like this. He says, I remember several years ago walking through the mall at Surfer's Paradise on the Gold Coast when I saw a rather confused lady standing with a sign around her neck that said, Ross Perot is the Antichrist. Here I was in the Southern Hemisphere, 10,000 kilometers from the USA, and an Australian woman was announcing that some third-tier American presidential candidate was the figure of evil prophesied in the Bible. She claimed to know the details and was eager to tell everyone else. And the stories and experiences like these that sometimes make people want to avoid the subject altogether. They don't see how the subject has any practical significance for them. They're happy to know about Jesus, but they don't need to know about the end. But here's a little hint for you. Good teaching about the end should make you more focused on Jesus. Good teaching about the end time should center on Jesus. Anyway, Paul corrects over-interest and under-interest by telling us that we really should be informed. He does not want the Thessalonians or us to be uninformed about the end. Now, the question is, how informed? How much should we know? Well, notice how little information he gives the Thessalonians in that passage. He doesn't tell them what our resurrection bodies will look like. He doesn't describe the new creation. He doesn't tell us the process for the final judgment. And he certainly does not give us a roadmap for political events in the 21st century. Paul gives them what they need to know. I like the way one scholar put it, Ben Witherington III, if you've got like any digits after your last name, your IQ goes up by like 100 points. God reveals enough of the future to give us hope, but not so much hope that we do not have to live by faith every day. I like that. 1 Thessalonians 4 gave the Christians there enough to deal with their grief, but it didn't give them everything. It didn't give them a roadmap to, of events towards the end. Now, to be fair, there are several other places in the New Testament that do give us more information. I acknowledge that. But they don't give us a roadmap. But they do give us more. And it's also interesting, but, sorry, what I want to say is, I believe it's significant that Paul only devoted a few verses on this topic to the Thessalonians. It's also interesting that the immediate application coming out of his teaching on the end is not for the Thessalonians to start paying a new subscription to the Macedonian Herald and looking at world events. Rather, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know what's going to be unexpected. No one can 
predict it. Matthew 24, verse 36 teaches that. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, here comes Paul's application. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. So Paul's application coming out of that passage on the end times is not to to buy some more subscriptions to a news um, source or something like that, but rather, he says, be children of the light. Jesus is going to come back at any moment. It's going to be like a thief in the night. You won't expect it. It's going to be like when a pregnant woman has labor come on all of a sudden. They don't know when it will happen, but it will happen. And so the application that comes out of that is let's live as children of the light. Let's live soberly and awake and, and look to, to do what Jesus commands us to do so that we won't be ashamed when he returns. The end times really do have practical significance for our lives as followers of Jesus. They fill us with the hope of seeing Jesus again despite the threat of death. It, give, it gave Christians like Hugh Latimer the strength to hold on to the gospel even when his life was at risk. Latimer was a minister in England during the 16th century. And England's Christianity is tied to its royalty in many ways. And and as the tide of power kept swinging between Protestant and Catholic monarchs, either side would become persecuted. Latimer himself was a Protestant. And he took great courage in the truth of Jesus' return in our passage today. And he reportedly said, It may come in my days, old as I am, or in my children's days, that the saints shall be taken up to meet Christ in the air. And so shall come down with him again. He lived in the reality that Jesus really could return at any moment. And this belief gave him practical courage, gave him strength to face what lay ahead of him. It so happened that another Catholic ascended the throne, Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary. And she had Latimer burned at the stake along with Nicholas Ridley for their beliefs. And I just want to read a little bit to you from this book. It's called Fox's Christian Martyrs of the World, written by John Fox back in the 16th century. And this circulated not long after Latimer's death to encourage people about the different Christians that gave their lives for the gospel. And this is what he writes about Latimer and Ridley. It says, Then they brought a torch and laid it at Ridley's feet. Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley. And play the man, Latimer called. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. When Ridley saw the flames leap up, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. Latimer cried as vehemently on the other side, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. He received the flame as if embracing it. The sight of Ridley and Latimer's struggle that day moved hundreds in the crowd to tears. Seeing years of study, Latimer himself was an Oxford professor. Seeing years of 
study and knowledge, all the godly virtues, so much dignity and honor, all consumed in one moment. Well, they are gone. And the rewards of this world they already have. What a reward remains to them in heaven on the day of the Lord's glory when he comes with his saints. I love that story. What gave Latimer and Ridley the courage to face their death? Now, if you read it, Ridley wasn't quite as courageous. It was a lot more painful and fearful for him. But Latimer was, seemed to be unnerved in the face of it. What gave them that kind of confidence but the Bible's teaching about the end? Latimer knew from passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 that his death would not be a full stop but a comma. He was not uninformed about life after death and about the end and about Jesus' return. So let's jump into the details of Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's allow him to inform us. The second thing he teaches us is that all believers will enjoy Jesus' return. All believers will enjoy Jesus' return. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that probably doesn't come as much of a surprise to you. But it was for the Thessalonians. Remember, they really didn't seem to know whether those who had died would see Jesus' return. So Paul put them at ease and corrected this unnecessary fear. He said, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, actually, we certainly will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So that translation there of certainly, will certainly not proceed. <clears throat> it's our English way of capturing a strong negative in the original Greek. In Greek, he basically says no twice. It's like he was saying, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, let me say it, will not, let me say it again, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, what's Paul getting at by saying that? Well, the Thessalonians expected that they would be honored and their brothers and sisters would miss out, the ones who had died. But Paul completely reverses their expectations. He says, actually, those who have died will come first with Jesus. They will be all the, even more honored than you. And then after that, we will join them in the clouds with Jesus in the air. Next, Paul tells them that when Jesus descends, three things will happen. Three things will happen. There will be a loud command the voice of the archangel, and the sound of a trumpet. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, why does this matter? Well, it's not important because we need to look for these things to happen. It's going to happen before we even realize it's happening. Rather, these details emphasize that Jesus' return is also quite a fearsome reality. Because the Greek words for command and trumpet are both battle terms. One of them was used at times to, um, to signify the beginning of a gladiator context test. Both of them were used to signify that a military encounter was about to happen. And in the Old Testament, one of its primary uses as well was to indicate warfare. The trumpets, primary uses. Specifically, <clears throat> that the law was coming to do battle and bring judgment. So, for example, in Joel 2, this is what we read. Blow the trumpet 
in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes. Such as never was in ancient times. Nor ever will be in ages to come. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The loud command and the trumpet don't just signal Jesus' return. They signal Jesus' intention to do war. At this point, the Thessalonians probably would have preferred to be dead than alive. But Paul reassures them that they won't be caught up in the fray. He says, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Just a little side note here. 1 Thessalonians 4 is one of the classic proof texts for what people call the rapture. The rapture is the idea that Christians all of a sudden will be taken up into heaven and there won't be anyone left and, and all the rest will be left here. But look into it yourself. You could possibly read the passage that way. But I think we're actually more correct to read the passage that we will join them in the air on their descent to the earth as Jesus comes to do war. Have a look into it for yourself. Anyway, Paul says that we will join in his victorious battle descent against evil. The persecuted Thessalonians who had Paul and Silas driven away from them and had some of their brothers and sisters lost them to death could know that one day Jesus would do swift justice and they would join him in his triumph over evil and that great enemy, death itself. Now you might be here or online with us this morning and you're just checking out Jesus and checking out what it's about and you might find this kind of disturbing. Really? Jesus, the one who's supposed to exemplify love, will come and do war against the earth. I just want to say three things in response to that, if you're feeling that. First, Jesus is a warrior, yes, but his fierceness is motivated precisely by his love. His fierceness is motivated by his love. We get angry because of our love for others all the time. If I saw someone trying to abduct my one-year-old son at the park, I wouldn't be polite I wouldn't be indifferent about it. I would get angry. I would use whatever force is necessary to protect my son. My love for my son necessitates anger. And in a similar way, Jesus really loves this world that humans have polluted. And he loves even more human beings made in the image of God with dignity. He loves the forgotten ones the victims of injustice, poverty, violence, and war. He loves his people who are martyred for their beliefs. More Christians were killed last century than in all 19 centuries before that combined. Firstly, I just wanted to say that Jesus' war against evil is driven by his love. Second, judgment is actually good news for many people because it means justice. <clears throat> Sorry, everyone. Many of us want to live in a world where judgment doesn't exist, but bad deeds, evil deeds, don't just vanish into thin air. They cost something. 
the Rwandan genocide costs something. Human trafficking costs something. What happened to Daniel Morgan? That costs something. If you want to preach love without justice, if that's what you want, you're preaching bad news to the silent sufferers and the unjust victims of this world. You're preaching good news to the privileged, to the comfortable, to, to many Western people, but bad news to victims of racial violence, to the families who have had children taken away, to those who live in constant fear for their lives. Our world needs justice. Judgment is good news for many. Thirdly, you should know that Jesus' primary enemies are Satan, sin, and death. When Jesus came into our world, he didn't come to assassinate Caesar or Pilate or overthrow the Roman Empire, as bad as it was and as many people as it enslaved. He actually died on a Roman cross. And even while his human persecutors were jeering at him, he was saying, Father, forgive them. Jesus came to do war with our common enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He came to destroy the power of Satan, his, his power to accuse us. He came to destroy the power of sin, which, which causes us to be broken and causes us to hurt others and ourselves. And he came to conquer death, that final enemy. That's what Jesus did in his first coming. The primary enemies of Jesus are Satan, sin, and death. But the reason I must say primary is because in the end, if you do reject Jesus, if you do not show Jesus gratitude for his death on your behalf, if you do not choose him and worship him, you will have aligned yourself with those enemies and you will be caught up in his judgment. That's the truth of God's word. Now, that's a sobering reality. But Jesus will not allow evil into the good world he is creating. You cannot be freed from evil's grips by your own human efforts. It's too entrenched in our lives, in our hearts. We only, only Jesus can remove it. And only God can forgive it. Because Jesus died for sinners and sufferers. And he rose again. And he conquered death. Christians aren't any better than anyone else and we ourselves still sadly participate in evil but when Jesus returns our old selves will be done away with our old bodies will be replaced with resurrection bodies and we will never steal or cheat or look at others with religious smugness again all of us need a savior will you let Jesus save you I pray that you will and maybe you want to come to Jesus, but you just can't believe in all this stuff about being taken up in clouds and an end-time judgment. Maybe that sounds like more fiction than fact to you. And it's a good question to ask. How can we really know that we will rise from the dead if our trust is in Jesus? Well, Paul's answer would be, because Jesus has already risen. Because Jesus has already risen. This is the truth that Paul grounds all the claims in our passage. He says in verse 14, We believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him and, the, and transform the rest of us who remain alive as well. Our own hope and resurrection is based on the historical resurrection of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says that Jesus' resurrection is a kind of first fruits, a foretaste, a pledge of what is to come for the believer. Now, believe it or not, there is actually a lot of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't just categorically deny resurrection and you take an honest look into the evidence, I would say that there is more evidence to suggest that Jesus rose from the dead than any of the other alternatives, like the disciples being deceived lunatics or the disciples creating a false conspiracy to trick people. In fact, Lee Strobel, he was completely hostile to his wife's Christianity. And as a gifted investigative journalist, he worked for the Chicago Tribune amongst other different journal, journal agencies. And as an investigative journalist, he set out to disprove his wife's beliefs by examining the evidence for the resurrection. And he ended up becoming a believer in the end because he was convinced by the evidence. You can read his classic book, The Case for Christ, anytime you want. Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard professor of law, and he was an expert in legal evidence. And he used to get upset by a certain number of his students, the students who claimed to be Christians. He thought, if you believe in that stuff, you'll believe in anything. But one time, his, his Christian students challenged him, just look into the resurrection, try and disprove it. And he also ended up becoming a Christian as he honestly explored the evidence. Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the hope of resurrection for the believer is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus himself. And this is why Paul was confident enough to call death sleep for the Christian. Through Jesus and his resurrection, he has undone the finality of death. He has made it temporary, a comma in a sentence that leads to glory. When Jesus saw death ravaging his world and his people, he loved them enough that it made him angry. And we see this foreshadowed in the death of his friend Lazarus. In John 11 verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's kind of a sanitized translation of the Greek there. The Greek word for deeply moved, they would use it to describe a bull flaring its nostrils or a horse flaring its nostrils as it was about to go into battle. Jesus was enraged at death. He was angry at death because it was hurting the people that he loved. And when he went up to the tomb, he shouted for Lazarus to come out. Life, not death, would have the final answer. Through Jesus, death becomes as harmless and temporary as sleep. Jesus came to accomplish just this, and he makes a real offer to all of us today to take his hand, to come to him, and to trust him with our future. And if you aren't a believer, you have every opportunity right now to acknowledge your own participation in sin and receive the forgiveness and hope that Jesus freely, willingly, lovingly, gladly offers. He loves sinners. So much so that people like me now can say, I'm a sinner without any shame. Because I know that what once I thought was what made God reject me 
is actually the very thing that made me the object of his love. That I'm a broken sinner and I can come to him and receive his love. Jesus' heart leaps out to sinners and suffering. But will you let him come to your aid? Will you put your trust in him? The offer is there. So what ultimately did Paul want us to do with the truths in our passage? Did he have any practical end in mind? Well, yes, he did. This brings us to Paul's final lesson, and I'll make this one quick. Paul's third and final point is somewhere. (laughs) I don't think I've got it up there, but third and final point is that the future provides us comfort in the present. The future provides comfort in the present. Details about the end don't propel us into a hobby charting out historical events. Instead, they provide us with real comfort in the midst of the real challenges we face today. And Paul challenges us to actually make use of this teaching, of this belief. He says, encourage one another with these words. Cheer up one another with these words. What do you normally talk about after the service or in your growth groups? Do the resurrection and the return of Jesus ever feature in your conversations? My question is, do you ever talk about it? Jesus' return and our, and our future resurrection should at least be part of our conversations at times. And if we don't talk about it, what's wrong with us if we don't? Maybe it reveals we don't really, truly believe it. Or maybe we're scared of being a bit too spiritual. We think the other person just wants to have small talk and take it easy. But this is actually supposed to be a really encouraging truth. And that's a question to consider. Do you ever just talk with your brothers and sisters about the resurrection, about Jesus' return, especially when they're sad and discouraged? Because the truth is that at any moment, Jesus will come back and justice will be done throughout the earth and our sin-sick world will be restored and filled with the presence of our good God. That's something worth talking about. That's something worth dwelling on. Jesus will return and all who trust in him can know that they will join him in his victory over evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would make these truths become real to our hearts. We look at brothers and sisters like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who found these truths such an encouragement, Lord, that they were able to face death, even burning at the stake. Lord, we pray that you would make this real to us, that Jesus, that we would know that we will see you face to face, either in this life, or in the next. Lord, we put our trust in you this morning. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and cheer them up because no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter the suffering we're facing or the injustice that grieves us, we know that you care, Jesus, that you care enough to get angry and to confront Satan, sin, and death, to do war against them, Lord Jesus and to liberate us, to set humankind free.
Jesus, we pray for those friends among us this morning who have not yet trusted in you, who have not yet surrendered their lives to you. We pray and ask, Holy Spirit, that right now you would speak to their hearts, that you would show them, Jesus, that you are a friend of sinners, that you are a lover of sufferers, that you came and you gave your life to save us. And we can accept that free gift while there's still time left. So Jesus, we pray for them. We pray that they would come to know the joy of your love. We bless your name. We pray all this as your people.